Santa's watching, Santa's creeping. Now you're nodding, now you're sleeping. Were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad. Welcome to Now Playing's Silent Night, Deadly Night retrospective series. This fella dressed as Santa. He said about killing them that was naughty. Hosted by Stuart. What the hell's wrong with that kid? Arnie. I don't sleep. And Marjorie. Well, I stop seeing these creepy things. I hate it. Each week, we will be unwrapping and reviewing another film in the Silent Night, Deadly Night series. Leading up to a review of the remake, coming out in December. Christmas. The number one holiday for people going nuts. But be warned. Opening this gift will give you detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Merry fucking Christmas. Santa's creeping, now you're nodding, now you're sleeping. Were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! <laughs> Tonight, we are talking about Silent Night, starring Malcolm McDowell, Jamie King, Donald Logue, Ellen Wong, and Brandon Fair, directed by Stephen C. Miller. And we have to see, are they on my naughty list this year? We'll find out. Ho, ho, ho. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Why don't you come sit on my lap and we'll talk about whatever comes up. <laughs> Steward in L.A. Do we have to do Christmas quotes? Uh, I want to be a dentist. This is Marjorie, and all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. And presumably your limbs, and maybe your, you know, breasts or something. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, <laughs> the song's kind of morbid, but I played the hell out of it when I was a little girl. And we have reached the culmination, our final Christmas gift, Silent Night, the remake of the original film, or at least... Theoretically based on the novel Silent Night, Deadly Night by Charles E. Sellier, which I still cannot find a copy of to review for Books and Nachos. Please don't tell me where to find it. <laughs> and may have never been published. Let's face it. People can say it was a book first, but maybe it wasn't anything more than a manuscript on somebody's desk. Which has happened. There was a three-episode arc of the TV show Hunter that started based on a book by so-and-so, and I hounded my local bookstore figuring it was something they could order or would be in print soon, and finally they got to know me. No, it is not really a book. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most famous example of that is that stupid November Rain video from Guns N' Roses that claimed it was based on something, and every headbanger I know was hounding me like I was going to find it for whatever it was based on. It was based on nothing. <laughs> but this was the film, out of all of them, that I had the highest expectations for. It's a return to Malcolm McDowell for horror. We've, of course, reviewed him in the two Halloween movies, plus Donald Logue, who he reviewed in two Marvel movies. So I thought this film from Anchor Bay, Anchor Bay does a lot of horror for home video, some better than others, but I really had high expectations that this film could be really good. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like Margie will even go halfway. No. <laughs> but I will say this. I think that it's an easy bar to leap over that this could be the most fun. I think that all of the films 
have been severely flawed. All of them are not recommends. I just want to make that official, even though there are some green arrows representing some of the movies. Those are fruitcakes. At no point would I ever recommend any of these to anyone, but some of them have been more enjoyable to chew on than others, and so I've given it the fruitcake recommend. This is the one that I was holding out hope might be one I could legitimately recommend. It was the only one that I thought might actually work as a real horror movie. I'm right there with you. But it's got its work cut out for it, because, you know, in the 20 years since Toymaker, there have been a lot of competing anti-Christmas horror movies. We're going to talk about James Russo in a few months in our donation series for Return of the Living Dead. He was the mastermind behind that. He put something out in the 90s called Santa Claus, C-L-A-W-S. And then wrestler Goldberg played a demon that was Santa Claus in Santa's Sleigh, S-L-A-Y. And then there was even a Finnish movie in which Santa was dug up at a archaeology dig and turned out to be a cannibal. I mean, it was the real Santa flying around chewing up children. I mean, I would say the idea that Santa was this noble figure that had never been soiled by a movie before, well, that's long gone by the time that they're attempting to get back to Silent Night, Deadly Night. They got their work cut out for them if they're hoping to offend us. And despite the protests, we talked about this with the original Silent Night film, I really feel the protests were more about the portrayal of Catholicism and Catholic workers like nuns and priests than about there being a killer Santa. A killer Santa is a way to try to bring more people onto the cause, a galvanizing point. But in all these movies, I've complained the past three about lack of killer Santa. So I thought that getting back to killer Santa as the original premise is a good way to go. But we had to do a lot of research on this movie because we didn't know when it was coming out. We were planning to do this series. We're like, is it coming out? I had a Google saved search for any time a place would publish a news article about this movie. I would get emailed trying to find a release date. And from these articles coming in, I was told through interviews with Malcolm McDowell that this movie was focusing on cops trying to stop a Santa killer. So I knew right away this was going to be a very different take than our original Silent Night where we had the slow, methodical creation of the Santa Claus killer. I thought that we would get a Billy or Ricky. I really thought that they would hew close enough that there would be the same killer. One of my big complaints is that there have been no one to root for in all of these. And so, yes, if we could focus on a victim, Lady Cop, Love that idea. Malcolm McDowell, I've enjoyed him playing Loomis, or at least for one of those Rob Zombie movies. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. I was hoping for a reboot of the original instead of something completely new, which is what we got. I was hoping that we'd get the original remade at a pace that didn't make me fall asleep. That was my only wish going into this. I guess that's what I wished for when I sat on Santa's lap. High Hopes, a movie that doesn't bore you to death. <laughs> yeah, that was my wish. You've seen that movie twice now, maybe even a couple more times with the added footage, Marjorie. I, I don't know. I think we can afford to have a little bit of different take on how we wind up with a psychopath wearing red and white. But as you say, we didn't know when this thing was coming, and I thought we would be opening Toymaker on Christmas. I did not know that today, for sure, up until a few weeks ago, that we were going to be able to review this new film. And they didn't make it easy on us. I gotta say that... In all of the country, 
Silent Night was only released in theaters, I think, eight, and only two in the Southern California area. I had to drive 40 miles in rain, in bad L.A. traffic, to try and get to a theatrical screening of this. But I wanted to see it theatrically. I knew it was coming out concurrently in DVD. But I really wanted to see who else is going to turn up and what the crowd response would be in real time watching this reboot. Whatever it was going to be, I wanted to see it with the fans that were willing to plunk down theatrical release money to be there. So how many other people were in the theater with you? Four? Five? Arnie, want to guess? Did you see a matinee or an evening show? It was the first matinee performance. So it was Saturday morning, 1245 show. I would say you were the only one in the theater? No, uh, six other people. <laughs> a small group, but vocal. Okay, admittedly, it was an all dudes in trench coats kind of crowd, but they were enthusiastic. And at key points, there was a lot of, yeah, being yelled at the screen. And I'll bring that up. When we get to them, as we walk through the movie, I'll definitely chime in with the, yeah, moments. <laughs> So you can know what other people were really keyed into. Well, that's kind of funny. I did have to watch this on home video as the closest showing was a four and a half hour drive away. But thanks to our friends at Anchor Bay, I did receive a review copy ahead of release. So I was able to watch this and not pay anything for it, which kind of makes up a little bit for how much I paid for the first five movies. <laughs> and I wish I'd made those friends at Anchor Bay a little bit earlier since they re-released all five of those first movies. Not as badly as Marjorie wishes it, I'm sure. <laughs> That's money that could have been used to go through purses or something. No groceries for this week. Nope. It's the Artie Buys Movies diet plan. <laughs> but I will say that watching this at home in our home theater, I did yell, yeah, at the screen a couple of times myself. I admit one even myself. So it'll be fun to see what those moments are. And in order to do that, I guess we got to get to the plot. Arnie, I am so hoping my Christmas wish is that you got another song for us. Well, as the Wishmaster himself would say, granted. <laughs> that sounded kind of like Ricky, but I'll go with it. <laughs> New song. Good point. Oh. <laughs> oh, nice. This is my favorite Christmas song, so I'm really looking forward to this. Buss it. It was December 24 in Cryer, Wisconsin Where Ronald Jones' killing spree is about to begin See this one, Santa is not feeling very jolly His Yuletide plan, oh my god, kill the naughty The Santa was <laughs> illin' cause his wife had left him So he built a rad flamethrower on a whim And he burned all the sinners that the man had found But he shot, caught a fire, falls like dead on the ground His son saw all this and it gave him cause Now every year he killin' dressed as Santa Claus This year he returned to in that payback he stuffed a ton of weapons into his Santa sack He travels through the town killing those who are bad A slutty porno model and her smoker dad A bratty teen girl, drug dealer, cheating wife So many others, Santa took, took away their life <laughs> <laughs> Wow It's Christmas time in this small town 
Deputy Bradamore is feeling down. It's her first Christmas without her husband, but into work she is beckoned. A priest hits on her before his mass, and her boss sheriff is a pompous ass. <laughs> he arrests Santa based on a whim, finally convinced the killer Santa Jim. But Jim's guilt-free, Santa kills Aubrey's pop. He was the policeman who first put Santa to a stop. Kind of a convenient little coincidence there. The original <laughs> killer's son, the original cop's daughter. Now, what if she had left town? Totally different movie. Oh, well. The night ends at the police station. The flamethrower's the sheriff's termination. Alone, can Brandon Moore save the day? Or will Santa continue to slay? She gets the guts the worm has turned. With his own flamethrower, Santa is burned. Bradamore sees the station in flames. She never knows the killer's real name. But somehow the fire was not lethal. And Santa had a Merry Christmas and wants a sequel! <laughs> wow! I could just do this for the rest of the show! I'm gonna do like a pot lock, but I, I think I'll end up with a broken neck. Uh, yeah, it's one to close it out on. Thank you so much. Great Christmas gift, Arnie. Well done. So that is the plot, and it is not a whodunit, which I kind of expected it would be. This is really going back to, like, Friday the 13th of the Days of Old, where the killer is the other. And I think since Scream especially, it's become in vogue to have these slasher films where at the end, it's the Scooby-Doo unmasking moment. Old Mr. Wilkins? But why? <laughs> and they did that in the Urban Legends series. And so the fact that this is just about a Santa Claus killer who has come to this town, and it's not any of the people who we see the rest of the movie. He's just this guy who walks in and kills people. Was very odd to me, especially since he's a masked killer. Well, here's the thing. I explained that it was some doing to get to this movie theater. It was not down the street. I got there late. I walked in. This movie had already proceeded. I missed the opening in which Santa is shaving and prepping and putting that mask together. I stayed for a later show to see what I missed. But because I came in late, I thought it was a murder mystery. I thought for sure that one of these townspeople were going to be the killer. If I had seen him shaving and seen the face, I would have known it wasn't Donald Logue. I would have known it wasn't, you know, the Asian secretary. I would have known it wasn't Malcolm McDowell. But I had a lot of theories going through this, and I was stunned that I ended up being wrong on all of my guesses. Well, even seeing these opening scenes, they don't give us a very clear look at his face. It's all extreme close-up, and it's out of focus. And while shaving did take away a few suspects, I still did think at the end we were going to be told who the killer was. Because he does wear a mask. Why would you wear a mask if the point isn't to hide your identity? Yeah, it's a very good question, and one that I hope that maybe you would have some ideas on. Like I said, I was still reeling from the fact that they gave us a list of multiple suspects, killed them all, and ended up being some guy we'd never heard of, or rather... The child of someone we'd never heard of. I honestly started going through the movie and we'd be progressing about every 20 minutes and go, Oh, this person's a killer. Oh, this person's a killer. Here's the funniest part for me is before the movie even started, 
when the credits are on the screen and I see Donald Logue is third build, I go, well, Donald Logue is the killer. Because it's this rule I have, the third build actor is usually the killer. They're not the star, that's your hero. They're not usually the second build because they're the hero's support. But it's usually that third build character who's a name, who you recognize, but who has a smaller part until they become pivotal in the third act. So I wrote down as the movie was starting, my theory, Donald Logue did it. Am I right? And that's just based on the billing. But how many people is Donald Logan named for? I think a lot of people know him from his work on ER when ER was the number one show. You may not have him as a name that rolls off your tongue unless you're a big Blade and Ghost Rider and Knights of Prosperity fan like I am. He's a, oh, it's that guy yeah. kind of actor. And in this movie, that means something. Yes. Yeah, he's no Ellen Wong, but uh, yeah, Lisa Marie, I see her in the cast. I'm thinking Presley. I'm like, oh, how did they get her? Well, they didn't. <laughs> it's Tim Burton's old girlfriend. Can I confess something to you guys? Because I felt really stupid for about 45 minutes in this movie. I had it in my head that Jamie Kennedy was in this movie instead of Jamie King, even though I saw Jamie King's name. And for a long time, I thought Jamie Kennedy was a secret killer. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Well, I got confused, and then I realized, okay, Jamie Kennedy isn't in this movie, then I kind of felt bad for myself, but then I thought, wait, if Jamie Kennedy was in this movie, it might have been much better. Yeah, well, we'll see. I agree. I don't know who Jamie King is. She is this actress who I've seen in a number of things. Being in the Star Wars culture like I am, I find her fairly unavoidable because she married the director of Fanboys, Kyle Newman. He also attempted to make a Revenge of the Nerds remake, and the studio saw the dailies and shut him down, and he hasn't worked since. She was the sidekick to the bad girl in White Chicks. She does a lot of genre stuff. She's a voice on the Clone Wars because of the Star Wars Association. She was in My Bloody Valentine 3D. I've seen her. I usually think of her as highly attractive, but this movie was doing her no favors. Well, you know, she has to be in the boys' club here. She is the single female deputy in a small town where macho men are kind of running the show here. So she has to be like a boy, and she's the daughter of a very successful cop. And so I think that it was the right choice to de-glamorize her and not make her maybe a virginal character that's being stalked. But I like this take on it. She is a widow. She is having her first Christmas without her husband. When I came into the theater, it was her introductory scene. She's gotten a phone call from Malcolm McDowell, and she's reporting to work. Now, is it ever stated outright that it was her husband who died? Because it, she says, it's my first Christmas without John. And I'm like, is John your brother? Is John your husband? Is John your boyfriend? Because she's still living with her parents, and they just don't explore any of this. I think that if it had been a blood relation, the parents might have had more to say about it. And let's not forget, later when she confronts Donald Logue in the town square, he makes a snarky remark about, why aren't you home with your hubby making cookies? I think that was a sting for her. I think that's when we know we have confirmation it was a husband. Now, how he died, I thought I missed in the introductory scene. I thought for sure that when I stayed later, I would understand that it was something that she had done that had gotten him killed. But did you guys piece this backstory together? Did it ever really make sense to you? No, I think what was missing was what's called story development. 
I like I said, I am just theorizing that John's her husband, and a lot of it was left just undeveloped. I did not get any sense of feeling for her because of this. Like I, I think we're supposed to feel bad for her, but then they just didn't lay enough groundwork for us to get those feelings going and think, yeah, we want to be on her side. She's going to catch the killer despite all the odds. Yeah, not getting it. Well, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, you say someone's husband died. Okay, I'll feel bad for them. But I thought it would be directly linked to the plot. Like maybe he was killed by Santa last year. Or maybe the way that he died is something that she is going to almost be killed in the same manner. And that would have been a fabulous addition to the story. I think we're supposed to pick out the fact that something about her not being able to pull the trigger of her gun led to the fact that, you know, he died. I think later, her overcoming her fear of killing someone might have been the payout here. I I ask you guys, since you saw it on DVD, was there a deleted scene? Was there an extra to this? Does this characterization ever come up? There were four deleted scenes, three of which involve her talking to her mother, primarily saying, stay home. And I think they might have been deleted, not for time, because this is a short movie, but because whoever the actress is who played Brad Moore's mom was terrible. It was, she had this June Cleaver smile on her face the whole time. They do not explain anything else, except they do explore a little bit more of the character of the mayor, because late in the movie, there's a scene cut where she calls the mayor and says, call off the Santa parade. And he says, as a favor to your father, I won't tell the sheriff he went over his head, which the only thing it clarified for me is, yes, her dad was a cop in the same town. He wasn't a cop somewhere else, which helped remove a coincidence. But we're going to talk more about the Santa killer's motivations later on. Let's focus on Bradamore right now. And none of the cutscenes helped explain any of this the way I thought they would and should. Right. There is an attempt to create characterization here. I think that's what I want to compliment this movie. But the follow-through is not so good. Another thing that comes up here early, I was waiting to see Pan out. She likes crosswords. And she spends most of the movie ruminating on what a nine-letter word for a six-sided item would be. Boy, did I not get what that had to do with anything when we find out it was a snowflake. I don't know what it had to do, but she was in there saying it, and I just go, Snowflake! And Artie goes, you're good. Oh, you figured it out. I did, yeah. Oh, I'm going to call you next time I have a crossword stumper. I do the New York Times crossword. It's fun. Uh, To me, this inclusion says, this is a murder mystery. If... We have a character that says, I need to find out the answer to this clue. And another character says, let me Google it. And they say, no, I'm going to figure it out for myself. That says to me on a subtextual level, I am going to figure out who the killer is. So again, these early scenes, I'm liking this deputy character. I'm empathizing with her plight. I'm wanting to see her overcome whatever happened with her husband. And I'm thinking that she is going to solve a murder mystery. A setup that I got to say is not the setup to this movie. No, this movie is framed like this is the story of Aubrey Brattamore and her inability to pull the trigger and her overcoming and her working through all of this. But none of this happens. And truthfully, it isn't the focus of the movie. It's the filler of the movie. It's what takes up the time, but it does not pay off. Right. That's going to be a big disappointment. And one that was elongated because, believe me, after the credits roll, I'm like, God, I missed so much in that first scene. What did I miss? Well, let's <laughs> talk about the first scene because, really, there wasn't much that I missed at all. We see 
bits and pieces, body parts of the Santa killer as he clips his nails, puts on the suit, takes that plastic mask, and yes, disguises his face for the rest of the movie. There is a woman tied up in a bed that we'll learn is Alana Roach, and there is a man downstairs tied up in Christmas lights that we're going to find out is a missing deputy. I got excited by the first scene. I am a fan of the Saw movies and Hostel, and I thought we were going down a torture porn Santa road and thought that this was going to be a balls-out Santa killing people movie. And I love this first scene. Death by Christmas lights, awesome. But then I started thinking, well, how did they do that? Because Christmas lights can electrocute you, and he had this big thing on the wall. And I got distracted by that, but still awesome. And I love the meticulousness of the Santa killer because serial killers do things like that. They are very meticulous, and they are very OCD, and they're highly functioning individuals, and I liked it. I liked it, too. When I saw this, I also went back to Hostel and to Saw, and I'm like, Silent Night is torture porn. I can go with this. And I kind of liked how the first kill went, where it's left a little ambiguous if Santa killed the woman, but he definitely kills the guy who's like, I didn't know she was married. Are you her husband? And the Santa walks away and turns on the lights. And it's left to think, like, maybe he's going to let this guy live, but he electrocutes them. I'm like, you're already raising the bar that you're going to give me some inventive kills from this guy in torturous ways. So all you have to do is give me a good framing mechanism, and I'm going to be with you the whole way. And, of course, we'll find out once we really learn the identity of this Santa killer that adultery is something that's really a trigger. This is not a Santa that goes crazy because you wore a red sweater or have a red Crayola or anything. It's not the Billy Ricky color trigger of yore. They've dropped that. The motivation here is something different, and I suppose it has something to do with infidelity and promiscuity in a marriage. So it makes sense that the first people attacked would be a married woman that was going to run away with a deputy. I think it splits the difference, honestly. I think that on one hand, yes. I think that they think they need to compete with the torture porn of today and give us a grisly, more violent Silent Night than we've ever had before. But I also think they want a light touch. And honestly, the movie I wanted is more like our next kill in this, where we have people that really deserve to die and we see them get it in surprising ways. I would never have thought that any Silent Night, Deadly Night movie would have the guts to take down a teenager, no matter how bratty she was, no matter how badly she spoke to her pill-popping mom about how she needs to be taken to the mall. But, wow, they go here. I'd like to point out her pill-popping mom was taking nitroglycerin for her heart. Not Mother's Little Helper. Yeah, she she wasn't pill-popping in that way because of the dialogue, and I was actually having fun. She's like, Mommy needs her heart pills. You need to take me to the mall. It's like, wow. <laughs> it's an actually excellent parody of today's helicopter parents. For all the parents that are so afraid of their judgments of their children that they do everything that they say, this really is, yes, the way to kill them is to kill their baby. I would have not thought that this would have been the next step for Santa. And I have no idea why he winds up on this doorstep, but he's getting started. For whatever reason brings him to the doorstep, he pulls out a cattle prod, zaps the girl, in close-up, I mean, till she's foaming at the mouth, and then bludgeons her with a fire poker. I mean, wow. How did he know she was acting up? The motives of why and who and how after the original couple, 
I have no idea. I think the original couple was targeted because it was an adulterous situation. That's the trigger. But why he targets everyone else, we do find out that they all have, you know, sin and they all make blunders that are, by horror movie logic, reasons to die. But I don't know how he knows what he knows. He leaves gift boxes at the scenes of each crime. It takes the cops forever to make that connection. But he's leaving little wrapped boxes of coal around. He knows who he wants to kill, but I don't know how he knows what he wants to kill. Maybe he saw her at the mall last year. Maybe he's been scoping out this town for a long time. This is his big return to this town, but the coal, he has sent the coal early to some people, and others are targets of opportunity, and he carries around a sack full of coal that he can leave there. But we had that problem with the first one, too, right? With Leanna Quigley, how did... Billy know these people were bad people, but I was surprised that they killed the girl, and in that way, I'm not quite sure, that was a cattle prod I think he had that he was carrying around, I'm like, she doesn't just get it, she gets it bad. Right, it's the only time they do this, but it's enough. I wouldn't have ever thought that any child, and she is still technically a child, would get such a bloody death, or even a death at all in a flick like this. Yeah, killing someone that young is very risky. I think that this sort of sets the tone for humor as well. I mean, I do think there's a real savage, black-hearted satire to this as well, and I'm wanting them to go in that direction. I don't need this to be ultra-violent. I don't need to see Santa slowly carve somebody up, but I do love the idea of him being the anti-Santa, going around and instead of leaving presents for the good kids, bringing death to all the bad kids and all the bad people of this town. I want to see that movie. And this scene gives it to me. The problem with it started in this scene for me is the film style. And I don't know if it was budgetary. I did find out from the making of behind the scenes on the Blu-ray that it was intentional. I thought this was done in post. They do this shaky cam thing during almost every kill. And I'm like, their lighting and their effects just looked so cheap that in post, they inserted shakiness so we couldn't keep a focus on how bad everything looked. No, they actually show the director telling the cinematographer, shake the camera more! Shake the camera more! (laughs) I hated that. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I had much of a reaction. I noticed it. It didn't feel like it served the story they were going to tell. I think that the production values on this are higher than anything we've had before, so I'm just pleased with that. For whatever else we're going to say about this movie, this is technically the most well-funded and expertly made film of the entire series. Agreed completely. Absolutely. But you talk about the satire, and the one thing that I did get from this is that I think it is attempting. Don't hit me with an electric cattle prod for trying to think this, but what I got from it is maybe they are actually trying to have a social commentary about the meaning of Christmas being lost, and a commentary on a recession-era 21st century America. I think this town is a microcosm where everything is exaggerated, but you've got the salacious priest who's hitting on everything with tits and his sermons. Everything's exaggerated, including this little girl who gets the cattle prod. But I think they're trying to make a commentary on the commercialization of Christmas in a more and more secular America. Well, that's what I mean by satire. These are the elements that I'm really grooving to, is any time they are heightening 
the disconnect between the meaning of the holiday and what it has become. That, yes, the location for this is actually really kind of interesting. It is a small Wisconsin town that is really cut off from everything. It has one road that leads out to the world, and it's a road that is going to be crowded this day with a parade of Santas. They have this festival on Christmas Eve, and so they are completely cut out from the rest of the world. And so they have no one that can come and rescue them when it becomes a Christmas killing spree. I think that that's an interesting way to go. I also just like movies that are about a certain place. And they really do hit us in lots of different ways with how economically depressed and sleazy small-town America has gotten. Yeah, I think you're right, Arnie. I think it can be seen as a metaphor or a symbol or, or however you want to read it. But I do think that it is a litmus test on where America is with it being able to live high on the hog like it has in Christmas past. These people are poor, they're out of work, and yes, they're trying to act like it's just another Christmas, when in fact, it most certainly isn't. But just to correct you, it's not a priest. They veered away from that much. There is no attack on Catholicism in this movie at all. He's a reverend. This is just a church figure. There's nothing even particularly sinful about him hitting on women. He has not taken any vows not to do so. He's a lech, and it is kind of creepy when Aubrey comes to him and he makes Jesus loves you and he's here for you sound like some kind of come online. I mean, <laughs> he's definitely gross, but I wouldn't say that he's doing anything that is against his beliefs. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not an attack on religion whatsoever. Everyone is sleazy in this except for a few people. Yeah. So I think that staying away from the religion and the fact that this kind of came under the radar was probably why it didn't get protested. Oh, there's bigger things to protest anymore. But yeah, this is a town of despicable people. And this came back to the conversation we've had so many times, Stuart, where I'm totally rooting for the killer in this movie because I hate everyone in this town. And the person who I'm most disappointed to hate is Malcolm I'm-too-good-to-be-here McDowell. Oh, he was totally phoning it in. I think he was doing what he did in Halloween 2, which I think, if you go back to the tape, is something we all said we didn't like. <laughs> He's playing an opportunist. You know, the, the whole thing is the road's cut off. They can't get a backup police force to come in and help. He's fine with that. That's why he insists on the parade going on, is he wants to be the one to claim that he solved the crime himself. He's out for the fame, for the glory. He's not really thinking about protecting anyone. He's thinking about his own ego. And yeah, it's not a particularly delightful character, but I don't feel like this is Malcolm McDowell's strength here. I like to see Malcolm McDowell be a little crazy, maybe a little bit devious, but I don't like to see him be an asshole. And I feel like in Halloween 2 and in this one, he's just playing an asshole. That's not any fun at all. Yeah, I really thought that he would be a major likable character in this. I thought for sure that he was going to be the go-to presence. What I'd read in the interview beforehand was him saying this was his chance to play a good cop, and that's why he took the role, is because he hasn't had that opportunity. And I think he's so typecast as a villainous person, be it in that Star Trek movie Generations, and it all goes back to Clockwork Orange, of course. So... Seeing him when he was the good guy in the first Halloween movie, he became a bad guy in the second one, but he was a good guy in the first one, and seeing him be a good guy here, 
I wanted to really like him, but immediately it's shown that he's an asshole and he's arrogant and he's not just an opportunist, he's very lazy and just quick to say, well, case closed, it's done, everyone's fine. He seemed annoyed that people were just bothering him with the silly shit of, like, a Santa Claus killer, like he had better things to do. Every interaction he had with Brady Moore, I just got the impression that he just wanted to end it completely. Right. They do try and make him more likable later. He does come to her rescue, but I think because they were trying so hard to make us to, like, Aubrey, that they feel like they have to show her suffering under the leadership of someone that's not likable. And so, yeah, it would be much more fun if that he and Aubrey felt like a team and weren't at odds. But he's just always calling her and yelling at her that she needs to work on Christmas Eve and just a nag. Like I said, it's not even a fun villain part. I like him in a fun villain part. It's just an asshole part. And I do feel like a lot of the male characters written in this movie all have the same kind of voice and tone, that they're all ranters here. You know, he's always yelling about his own ego and and how they're going to solve this case. And then you have, yeah, the reverend that's screaming about sin and all of this at the townspeople. And then you got Donald Logue, who is an out-of-towner, but has a lot of spiel and stick on why Christmas sucks as he serves as their town square Santa. I was upset with how they used Malcolm McDowell's character, but I was outraged (laughs) about Donald Logue's use in this film. I like Donald Logue. I will be more inclined to watch things with Donald Logue in them. And the fact that here, he's nothing except yet another disgusting character. This time he's playing a disgusting Santa, and as disgusting as he tries to be, he's still no Billy Bob Thornton. The only reason I could explain it is he shows up early on in the beginning and we don't see him again. He's third build because he's worked before. But by the third act, I'm like, oh, it really is Donald Logue. I thought he was here to be the red herring or to be the wisecracking sidekick who may somehow accompany Bradamore on the investigation and prove useful in the third act. No, he's kind of a red herring, but not even enough of one where... We, the audience, believe that the only person who really believes it is the sheriff. I'm surprised to hear you say this. Marjorie, did you like Donald Logan in the movie? I thought he was wasted. I'll admit it. I will also watch things with Donald Logan. I don't know why I'm attached to this actor. I can't explain it. I'm not a big fan of his. But usually he brings an element of talent and fun. And I thought that the entire character, for the third build person in this, completely wasted. You could have cut him entirely out and just arrested a random Santa and put him in a cell at the end and you would not have missed anything in the movie. Well, I hear what you're saying in that maybe could have had more screen time or more part to play in the plot that we're given, but I think he's doing exactly what I expected him to. He's the naysayer. And let's face it, if we've all turned out for a movie about a killer Santa Claus, we want to hear someone shit on Christmas. We want to hear someone like Donna Logue tell little Timmy that he doesn't deserve anything this year, and his parents are selling their presents on eBay. I mean, I think we need to have somebody be this voice. But there are so many naggers in this movie. Because they've gone for this broad satire, and everyone's so despicable, Donald Logue doesn't stand out as well, because he's just one nagger of many. But I think he's doing what he needs to here. I guessed it was because he was Jewish, because his character's name is Jim Epstein. And that kind of was amusing, but I think that the character, they probably could have just cut out everything to do with that character, regardless of it being Donald Logue, and the story would not have suffered. They had a huge opportunity with the Santa Claus parade. 
to get another Santa Claus. And, you know, they just didn't. It was wasted. A completely useless character. Well, you're talking about how he ends up playing here. But in these introductory scenes, I think exactly what you're implying. I'm thinking this is a murder mystery. I'm thinking he's either our number one suspect or more likely the lovable red herring that will be exposed as the killer only to then find out that he's innocent and then he'll be killed. I'm projecting into the future already that his arc will be to die after being wrongly persecuted as the Santa Claus killer. That's what I think I'm getting here. And in the meantime, he's going to amuse us with his bent on how fraudulent Christmas is. I think the part works. I just, yeah, I think I'm with you in so far that I don't think it was fully fleshed out here, but it serves a purpose. I think that if they had just written some of these characters, like the mayor, differently, what if we liked the mayor? You know, the mayor's kind of seen as a bad person, too. We have this whole implied thing that he's doing where he's selling protected lands to build another road, and even his own daughter hates him for it. What if we thought some of these people were upstanding? I wanted to like the mayor. I didn't want to hate everyone in this town, even though I understood it was a satire about small-town America at Christmas. Having a movie where we felt bad for the victims would have been nice. That's one of the things I liked about the best of the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Streets is I like the victims and I'm sad to see them go. Here, yes, everybody is an ugly character unless their last name is Bradamore. Right. Yeah, Aubrey I like, but she seems to be the only one. And, you know, I kind of like Knives Chow, too. Ellen Wong is playing Brenda here. She's sort of a gossipy dispatch operator at the police station. She doesn't do much, but, you know, I think she's okay, too. I kind of like Aubrey's dad. I've seen the actor in other stuff, and he just comes across as an affable, nice character. Yeah, they're not all horrible, but the major players here, I think they're trying to do two things at once. They're setting people up to die that will root for their dying, and we're also seeing a list of suspects of who the real Santa Claus killer might be. I never thought the mayor would be one of them, and I just think that it's, well, it's kind of weird here that he has this relationship with his slutty daughter, Tiffany. I don't know where all of this is going at the start. And Tiffany has a boyfriend who is introduced out of the blue. I'm not even sure who this character is. All of a sudden, we're in a hospital and introduced to two new characters, and I never would have thought it, but they do a total callback to the original Silent Night with the catatonic grandfather, and for some reason, the catatonic grandfather has like thousands of dollars in his wallet. I don't know what a catatonic person needs with that much cash. I don't think you're impulse buying very much in cash if you're catatonic. And if the money goes missing, I think there's very few suspects because the catatonic person didn't spend it. How did the workers in this hospital and nursing home already not steal his money? Sorry to generalize any of you that listen to this show, but come on. He's catatonic. What does he even need money for? I appreciated the callback, though. It was fun. It made me realize that they weren't going to totally throw away everything but the concept of a killer Santa from the original. They studied it. Like us, they've seen all of those old movies, and they're trying to pick out the best bits and bring them back here at key moments. I laughed, I have to admit. I laughed at catatonic grandpa suddenly sparking the life and saying, you better watch out. Oh, it was absolutely great. Absolutely great. This is the other part that made me forget all the bad stuff that's happened in between the first kill and then this was, all right, okay, they're going to pay homage to every single movie and we're going to get something great and stuff is how it should have been done in these movies. Yeah, I was really happy with the callback because that was one of my favorite parts of the first one was that they did that. 
I was sad that they never followed up on that in the first one. Here, they never follow up on it again. My real question, though, this is great for the listeners of Now Playing, that there are several callbacks in this movie to the original. But quite honestly, how many people who are watching this movie have done what we've done and gone back and studied the originals or know them well enough or would even bother to watch them once before watching this movie and would get it? Because the scene serves no purpose except to introduce a character who really doesn't need introduction before his death scene at all. And to make that callback. Well, I'll go ahead and say that there was no yeah at all at any moment that was a callback to the original Silent Night, Deadly Night. The people that turned out for this were turning out for a slasher film set at Christmas time. They weren't fans of the series, or at least they didn't find these callbacks funny. There was no yeah for Catatonic Grandpa, and there was no yeah for the later ones, which we'll get to here in a minute. I didn't scream yeah for Catatonic Grandpa, but I did have a big smile on my face during it. The first thing that did get a yeah was Tiffany doing some coke. They liked that. She is mixed up in porn, and we find out that the mayor's daughter is... Is she just hanging out with these people because they have drugs? Or is she actually wanting to have a career in the adult film industry? I took from that whole scene that she had just finished. Yeah, that's what I got as well, is she'd done a photo shoot. Now, I don't know that this is actual porn, because they convinced the next one to take off just her top. It's certainly not hardcore porn by any means. If anything, it's just a cheap-ass website. But they give her a big envelope full of money for the work she's done, and they let her have their coke. But I thought she had just stopped in. I didn't realize that she had been there the whole time. Uh, Anyway, it doesn't matter. This is all set up for our next couple of kills. Tiffany is heading out the door and passes by Killer Santa, who, for reasons unknown, maybe he is a fan of their website, is coming to (laughs) take out these amateur porn filmmakers. Well, he's just passing through town. Maybe he's staying at the hotel and happened to see Mr. Snow coming through and When they say they're waiting for Mr. Snow and they're doing coke, there's not too much mystery about who Mr. Snow is. No, that was so transparent. My grandma would have gotten that and she's dead. But yeah, we see people doing softcore porn in a hotel. We know the way it's going. What I didn't expect is for him to do it with a scythe. Yeah, that's kind of mixing your holiday kills, right? That we say that for Children of the Corn or, you know, the Grim (laughs) Reaper. Santa's weaponry is multitudinous. I mean, whatever he's got going on in the trunk, I'm sure he has a weapon of mass destruction back there, too. He has everything. And they switch at any given moment. I mean, it goes from scythe to axe. Whatever he needs, it will magically appear in his hand. It's just like crap he finds along the way to the kill. I really think that's what's going on. (laughs) It seems like he's made him up himself, and that has a lot of meaning to him. But I did find it a little interesting that... There was a woman involved in the porno shoot, and not as one of the models, but actually just as one of the producers. You don't see that too often, but she's the first one to get killed for her role in this. I imagine maybe these characters are even based on people that they knew. Funny enough, I was watching this in a Van Nuys neighborhood movie theater. That's where they had it. That was the neighborhood that was screening this. Van Nuys is the capital of porn in Southern California, so... I think they were sitting behind me, quite frankly. I think Frank (laughs) and Goldie were in the audience screaming, yeah, when uh, Santa goes to town on their groins. 
Yeah, the fact that one gets castrated, not very subtle there. I mean, is this an anti-porn comment or just porn's bad at Christmas? I'm not quite sure. But this is also where we get our real gratuitous titty shot as the porn model is going to spend the rest of her life topless. This was impressive. I can't recall, since Linnea Quigley in Return of the Living Dead, a woman that spends as much time running around in the nude as Maria does here. You're making me really excited for our spring retrospective. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's all I remember about Return of the Living Dead. I mean, that's it. There was Annie in the remake of Halloween. She spends quite a bit of time there, too. True, but I I don't know. This feels extended. And really, one of the better, more exciting kills in this film. I mean, they stage it with a lot of suspense. You know, she's almost taken out in the bathroom being choked by the shower curtain. That would have been far less bloody than we need it, right? So they bring Frank back and he shoots him and that distracts Killer Santa so she can jump out the window and run over to a neighboring, what, what, is this like a Christmas tree sale lot? Is that what's going on here? Yeah, it's a tree lot. Empty. On Christmas Eve? Because of the Santa parade! This is the biggest thing to happen in this town ever! All I could think of was, because of the nudity, this was a closed set, and they couldn't even have extras around. I mean, she is running through an abandoned thing. They're talking about the Santa parade, where they're going to have 500 Santa contestants. I don't think they had 500 people in total on this set, and that includes the crew. And so when she's running through a hotel parking lot and a Christmas tree lot, on Christmas Eve, in broad daylight, and not a single person around, all I could think of was, this movie is cheap. I realize it's probably not budgetary, and probably more they wanted her to be isolated, but then that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, you know, you gotta have a person in danger alone. I mean, it wouldn't be any fun if she ran next door and there were three other people, and now Santa is having to kill multitudes. I mean... It has to be about him finishing the job. She gets away, lands on garbage, no less. I thought that was the garbage they call back, but it comes later. And yeah, when she ends up banging on the door of the Santa at the tree lot, he's gone to the parade already. I didn't know what we were going to get, but I've got to say, this may be the best kill of the film when she ends up in that tree mulcher. Oh, it absolutely is the best kill, and I knew it was going that way, though. You do not have a murder film where a character runs by a wood chipper, and that character doesn't end up in the wood chipper. Yeah, that had to happen, and fabulous job at it, too. It was hysterical. You wanted a yeah moment. This was my moment. When you see her going in the front, and her blood is being shot out the back, and she's still screaming, I was loving it. That was awesome. Yeah, really, when they do it in the long take. And you can see the actress, like, hanging out of there with the blood. I mean, it's really that long take that really sells you on the moment. It's gross, and in a great way. I mean, it is the kinds of kills that I was expecting this series to have the whole time through, and it never really did. I think that they have finally nailed what seems so obvious about how to do Christmas-themed kills in a slasher movie. Yes, at this point, a half hour into the film, I'm thinking the kills really are working so well for me that I just am waiting for the whodunit to get moving. Because despite this going on in broad daylight, the cops are like 18 steps behind our killer Santa. Right. They're only finding the deputy in the basement at this point. Yeah, and being called over to see the body of the dead girl, even though many, many hours have passed in the meantime. 
at this point, I mean, the Santa parade is starting at night and they're just realizing that there's a killer, not sure of how many people are being killed. It's this hotel kill with the porno people that really give them their first big clue because since they were making a video, of course, this is caught on tape and it makes them think that this Mr. Snow who was going to make their delivery is the killer. Right. That, come on, we know that's not going to be true. But the fact that the footprints are bloody work boots, that's the key there. At this point, they are telling us that this is someone that was laid off from the mill. This was a mill town, and that industry collapsed. And so it must be one of these economically depressed people that have snapped. The killer is not the husband of the cheating couple. He has an alibi, but it may be someone in this industry. I'm sure of it now. I'm sure that I can figure out who it's going to be. And I'm sure that Aubrey is going to do it too. The one thing that hurt me was the fact that because of this footprint, they're like, he's big, he's over six feet tall. And now that really narrows down the suspects we have who are characters on screen. It's not the mayor. It's not Malcolm McDowell. I don't know how tall Donald Logue is, so he's still in the running for me. It's not the doofy deputy. Okay, here's my only point I want to make here is that Santa wears boots. Someone is going to be wearing work boots with their Santa costume. I thought it was a pretty crappy clue. But of course, there were several deaths that were so far telegraphed that it was just a matter of where to insert them. Of course, the priest has to die. I'm surprised the priest came back, but hey, they're slutty-looking Santas, including the mayor's daughter, so he can take some pictures of their cleavage. It was kind of Twin Peaksy, You know, mayor's daughter involved in porn. Yeah, I got a little bit of that too, Marjorie. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I see Twin Peaks influence a lot. I think a lot of people in horror are influenced by Lynch. I think that he is an underrated horror filmmaker. So yeah, I get that. I didn't. The only Twin Peaks I got was that Aubrey's theme in this sounded a lot like Falling by Julie Cruz. But another big yeah moment is this reverend going to town on Christmas. That he only has an audience of one, but he is going to give this scathing rebuke of Christmas. And that how sin is at the beating heart of it all. Man, the trench coats were loving this. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they really thought that this movie was... Well, like I said, if you're here to watch a movie in which people are killed at Christmas time, you're probably not going to leave and then go buy Hallmark cards. You know, these are made <laughs> for people that are cynical on the very meaning of the holiday. No one that would pay a ticket price to see this would want this movie to celebrate the values of Christmas. They want someone to dump on it. And this reverend really does. My only problem, and I've said it before, is we have too many characters dumping on Christmas and ranting about their cynical views. I feel like you either have Donald Logue do this or you have this priest do it. You don't have two characters deliver the same tirade. I'm surprised they went with it because I am a fairly cynical person. I am watching Killer Santa movies at Christmas. But this priest's diatribe, I thought, was a commentary on religion. You say he's a minister. He's wearing the priest collar, and that confuses me. You know, if you wear the white collar, I think priest. And if it wasn't against the cloth for him to hit on these women, then I don't even see what he did that was so wrong, other than he's just not very subtle about it. He's not suave. But he's giving this diatribe, and I'm like, this is like the worst thing I channel flip past on Sunday mornings. And that there's even one person there listening to him. 
I know he's going to die when I see Santa come in. I figured he was going to die even before Santa comes in. But this angry sin about Christmas, I'm not taking it as, yeah, I agree with him. I'm taking it as someone shut this pious ranting up. It works in both ways. I mean, yes, on one hand, it's pious because he ultimately turns his critique on American Idol and internet porn and all of that. But before he does, he characterizes the birth of Jesus as a filthy manger scene. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I do feel like there's something very irreverent about this reverend characterizing the very meaning of Christmas as being about sin and God's attempt to vanquish it. It's some kind of powerful monologue, and it does grab you. I don't think that anyone in a regular church service would stand for this kind of thing on Christmas Eve. She was bought off after witnessing a murder, though. Yeah, exactly. It just tells you how desperate and economically depressed this town is, that she can watch this guy get his, what, fingers cut off and stabbed way too many times to count, (laughs) and is fine with being handed the collection plate that Killer Santa had actually taken off of the Reverend. And she was in church on Christmas Eve. I mean, who does that? Well, somebody in the credits is listed as homeless woman. And I'm wondering if this woman's supposed to be the homeless woman, which would help make her even more sympathetic and explain why she would be in there, because it's warm on a cold night. I just took it to mean that we thought that she would be the only one to care. You know, an old lady, all the younger people are rather care about Santa parades than they do about the meaning of Christmas, and that this is the one true believer. And even she, well, she's not so devout, is she? It's kind of a funny joke. And this is where the movie really starts getting into swing. After this point, we have a lot of deaths pretty close together. I mean, we're entering the more action-packed portion of the movie, but it also is where we catch up to Mr. Snow, who is dressed like Santa Claus, and Bradamore meets him in a bar, and he's going to tell of a urban legend about a killer Santa Claus with a flamethrower? Yes. This is the cheat that I didn't even know at the time was the cheat. But yes, he is going to tell us who the killer really is, or at least where we can expect to see the killer coming from. And that is not fair. If you imply that there is a urban legend of someone that goes around and hacks up small towns, a different one each year, I expect that we're going to find out who that is from the list of suspects here. I am not going to accept that it is a totally random person. That's wrong. You can't do that. Well, they did. That's the problem. Yes. I mean, and you're right. This is a problem that has a history all the way back to Friday the 13th, where we think it could be someone at the campground and no, it was some mom that years ago. I mean, you have to give people the opportunity to be able to figure it out. That to me is what the crossword clue was all about. We have to be able to have the ability to have met the character sometime in this first half in order for this urban legend killer's revelation to mean something here. I just knew it wasn't going to be Stein Carson, the man telling the story. That would be too obvious. Mr. Snow is not going to be our killer. I thought we would see clues as he described it as to who it could be and tie it back to one of the multitudes of people still in the town that haven't met an end yet. Here's the thing that I thought is I figured this was the backstory for our Santa. What I didn't get, though, are things that wouldn't be told to us until right about when credits roll, where this isn't the Santa. I thought this was the Santa's origin story, and 
the guy says every year after that first one, a new town has people killed. I thought that the Santa that we're seeing here with the mustache and everything was the Santa who we'd find at the end. At this point, I couldn't think it was a murder mystery anymore because it's too much exposition and shown to us in the flashback. So the only thing I thought they might be doing to us is a Kaiser Soze. Because remember in Usual Suspects, spoiler alert for Usual Suspects, but if you haven't seen that movie, you really should by now. When you find out Kaiser Soze's backstory that he killed his own family, but the person in that flashback is not the actor who is revealed to be Kaiser Soze at the end. So I thought maybe the guy with the porn stash was a surrogate for Donald Logue or something. I'll go one step beyond. I thought that at this point, it was Aubrey's dad. You know, he was so benevolent. He was so likable. He was the only male character that was so likable here. And the fact that he was older, well, then it occurred to me that, hey, maybe he's the one. He's dressing up for the Parade of Santas. We haven't seen this character during any of this. He has no alibi that we know of, and he would be the last one you would think. I thought for sure, at this moment, from this point on, my number one suspect moved from Malcolm McDowell to this guy. I knew it had to be Aubrey's dad, and thus why it was going to be important that she worked on Christmas and he was a cop. I just thought for sure all of this would come together as a father-daughter thing here at the end. I was convinced of it. You couldn't have convinced me otherwise. He was so kindly, he was never a suspect to me. But I like it. I do like that. I wish they'd done that. There's yeah. a lot of things I wish they'd done with this movie. But we all agreed Mr. Snow is just the red herring here. You know, for reasons unknown, he has a knife like Santa has used on the Reverend. And he does try to kill Aubrey with it when she fingers him as the drug dealer. I thought that was a little far-fetched. But I guess they wanted to imply he was more than just a drug dealer. He was capable of murder and thus he could be this killer. Whatever. He's obviously not the killer because he didn't kill her. And he had a knife. He didn't have cattle prods and wood chippers. Well, the wood chippers are something you take with you to the murder scene, Arnie. <laughs> it's too boring for a kill, though. I, you understand, at this point, we really need the Santa to always deliver something, you know, clever. It's just not enough to, you know, cut her with the knife. Yeah, they're doing a lot to distract us. Weirdest moment of the entire film, Joe. Who's Joe? It's a scene that has no place in this movie. Joe walks up, knocks on Aubrey's car door, and asks if, in fact, she's been investigating dead bodies. And she says no, and he goes, oh, I didn't believe it, smiles and leaves. Do you remember this scene? I do, yeah. Why is this here? Because Joe is the producer of this movie, and he wrote oh! himself a completely useless scene here just so he could be on camera. This is what we're dealing with here. I, couldn't he have played somebody meaningful to the story if you're wondering why they did it that's why they did it even the producer could be the killer something else that happened around this time that confused me is when aubrey is talking to the sheriff about who the killer is and he goes don't put avocado on the hamburger <laughs> and i'm like but i like avocado on a hamburger and then she continues he goes now you're putting hummus on the <laughs> avocado on the hamburger would that be good? Is that really nasty? I think hummus and avocado is not a flavor combination I would like, especially with beef. 
Yeah, I, I'd go for it, actually. You know, California, we love avocados and everything. You do, and hummus is delicious. But I guess I was wondering, you go to a small town, they probably don't know what hummus is. That's true. I eat hummus when I go to Manhattan. I don't eat hummus when I go to Boise. No. Then we get to another couple fun kills, though, because the movie's lagging. Needs some kills. And I kept wondering when that jerky kid who stole Grandpa's money was going to come back into it. Turns out... He's the very lucky boyfriend of the mayor's slutty daughter. Yes, and they decided to use the guest house to have a Christmas Eve commingling. Well, it's the holidays again. And the guest house, it's very funny because it's so obvious they're going to the guest house to fuck. And the father's there and she's like, did you finish the guest house? I'm going to go show it to him. And he knows his daughter's a hoe. And yet he's like, well, make it quick. Not don't go, just make it quick. Yes. Our parents these days are enablers. They are not disciplinarians. I think that is a characterization they are satirizing here. We saw it with the mom and the bratty daughter. We're kind of seeing it here, too. And, of course, the mayor has his own vices. He's out there on smoke break. Maybe that's why he gets killed next. Yeah, he is smoker. Now, the cutscene shows him to also be pompous and refusing to cancel the parade for the safety. But in the final cut of this film... I feel that nothing the mayor has done is warranting death. I mean, yeah, he smokes. There is that little thrown line about sacred land being sold for a road, but he's really trying to save the town, so it he just doesn't seem like that bad a guy. No, he doesn't. And stopping the Santa Parade doesn't seem like that would be very helpful either. At least if you have all the Santas in one place, you have all your suspects rounded up, right? I mean, it's not like Santa is working up to blow up the town square or do some kind of mass killing project you're safer in numbers than you ever would be in your own home in this scenario couldn't you just like stop the parade and check them one by one for what i don't know but he could be the judge yeah i agree you act like you're doing it to evaluate who's the best santa and really you're dusting for prints and you know checking for knives i'm with you on, on that marjorie but whatever that parade never even really amounts to anything here It's all about taking the mayor out in his own home. After the mayor is obligatorily killed, we get another original movie callback, and I love it because he's going after the mayor's daughter with an axe. And I'm like, yes, because of the cover of the bloody axe. I love the dripping axe in the first film. He throws the axe. It's taking me kind of back to my bloody Valentine 3D a little bit with the throwing of the axe. And I'm like, she's going to get the axe in the back. No, it just hamstrings her. And then he picks her up, and I'm like, is he going to impale her on deer antlers? I haven't seen any deer around. Sure enough, there's like a moose on the wall, and he impales her, and it's no Leanne Quigley, but it's a good death. Yeah! Big, big response (laughs) from the crowd there. Brings him back to life. It's been a while since we gotten a yeah, but definitely feel like you got to give a shout out for this callback. It was the best kill in the first movie. It's one of the best kills in this film. And you're right, it totally needs to happen here. But I'd say a good runner-up here, one that's much more violent, the one that made me yeah, is what happens to the boyfriend. I agree. I did a yeah when the boyfriend gets the axe in the head and it's so explosively bloody. I smiled with the antlers. I didn't yeah with the antlers, but I yeah when he Gallagher's that head. (laughs) Oh, Gallagher's it. I gotta say, wouldn't it have been funnier if her boobs had leaked implant fluid instead of blood? That would have been awesome. Those things were not real. It would have been a while before any real blood would have popped out of that. Yeah, but realistically, 
that actress should have been topless. Leanna quickly went topless. They should have gotten an actress who would be willing to show the fakies off. And here, she kept wearing that Victoria's Secret naughty Santa bra. Yeah. I mean, not that I didn't get enough titties in the first girl, but it's kind of like when you have Sherry Moon as the stripper who won't take her top off. You need to cast for the role. I realize she thinks, oh, I'll never win my Oscar. You're never going to win one if you were in Silent Night 2012, so give it up. <laughs> then again, Jamie Lee Curtis did have a respectable career. I guess everyone can hold her up. In fact, they say you have to go topless in order to win an uh, Oscar. Most actresses have gone topless. Don't have won. Right, but they also say if you go topless, then they don't respect you for it, so... And you do it for art. You don't do it for Silent Night. You yeah. do it for something good. Correct, yes. Yeah. But the reason why they're dying is because they should have been at the parade. The mayor was supposed to be there. Tiffany was already there and came back. I mean, the whole action at this point is centering around the fact that we finally had the Santa parade. Well, they were stupid enough to be home, so that's why they got killed. The real stuff is going on because Aubrey is tracking down Epstein among all the Santas. She's convinced that because they know it's a Santa that has roved town to town... It must be their out-of-town Santa Claus. Well, I just want to go out on a limb here, first of all, and say that if you are known for the Santa Parade, which seems like a big deal, there's out-of-town people coming for it, wouldn't you have your own resident Santa Claus? I think that was Aubrey's dad. He was riding in the big Santa sleigh float in the parade. This was all very confusing because there was not enough backstory. But when they got to the parade, I was expecting a frenetic, crazy, action-charged chase scene, and I was underwhelmed well big crowd scenes cost money and i'm sure this is where they got really penny pinching i mean it's just hard to do that i mean big action movies can have cast of thousands and and that kind of thing here they were just lucky to have people turn out i mean it's underpopulated and underlit they did the best with what they could they clearly didn't have enough people to make this feel like a big parade of santa claus and so yeah this is a pivotal moment that ends up kind of falling flat you wonder why they bothered to have that to begin with. I guess the only excuse that it provides is that if there are so many Santas, which one would it be? The bloody one. The six foot tall one. I agree. <laughs> it's not that hard. I thought this would be better used because they even have Malcolm McDowell say the line, he comes on Christmas Eve, he's hiding in plain sight. And so I thought for sure that we would have this moment where like they'd see him perform a kill and be chasing him and get lost in the crowd of Santas. But they don't do that. No, yeah, you're right. That is the obvious way to deal with the fact that there's multiple Santas. Then you play with that. She grabs the wrong one, turns it around. It's not the one she thought. I mean, yes, you have to do that. But I, I do think that the reasons why they don't go there was probably originally scripted was they just didn't have the money to pay the people to stand around for days to film those kinds of intricate scenes. So it just ends up being about tripping Jim Epstein, throwing him in jail so he can give another anti-Christmas rant. And I think you're absolutely right. That recalled an interview I read with the director who said they had one night to do the entire parade scene and they needed much more time than that. So yes, there's a lot of budgetary constraints going on, but as compared to so many of the movies we've reviewed on Now Playing, where we discuss about art through adversity, here it's just hampering the end product. This entire film is as crippled by its budget as the mayor's daughter was once the axe cuts through her Achilles heel. 
Uh, you know, I'm going to throw it out there, though. I don't think I'm having as bad a time as you guys are. You guys are talking about crippling and bad. I'm remembering where we came from. I'm remembering <laughs> lesbian worm cults. I'm remembering three-hour drives to Grandma's house. This thing is paced much better than anything we've had. It's got higher productions than anything we've had. It's got some pretty awesome kills. I know I'm not going to call this a great movie, but I'm still wondering at this point, could I recommend? It is all hovering on how they wrap it up here as they move towards the climax. I am right there with you, Stuart. I do feel all of these problems, but the kills have been so fun. This is, again, yes, the best movie of the series so far, and a good climax. This movie could have gotten a real recommend from me versus the, oh my god, you've got to see Garbage Day recommend of the second one. Right, yeah, a non-ironic recommend. That's what I think they could pull off here. I'm not saying I had a bad time either with this movie. I guess I should clarify. The storytelling really was lackluster, but the kills made up for it. And proof to that, all of a sudden, Aubrey is back at the hotel. I have no idea why. Why did she do it? But the story demands that she must confront, at this moment in time, Mr. Snow character again. He has returned to the place where the porn people were killed. And this is where she both figures out the snowflake clue and gets over her aversity to pulling the trigger. Both of which have no fucking point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, allegedly these are important moments. And I'm thinking... What? What? Why? Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't know why she can't pull the trigger. Is it? I think it's because she's a woman. Yes, I definitely feel the implication is that there is some kind of thinking that she is too fragile for this job. It's said often by Cooper. Okay, wait a second, though. Don't say she can't pull the trigger because she's a woman. I, I didn't write it, but I think that's what the writer is thinking. You're just assuming because it just sucks as far as this, because there's no... <laughs> Nothing to give you anything to hint, and you're just assuming... There's also I nothing about a snowflake. No, there's not. There is a snowflake in a scene. Here's what I think really should have happened. When she shoots him, she gets him dead in the center of the head, right? And his brains explode out the back. It's another good kill, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I thought, since she's never really shot anyone, is the implication, that she couldn't be that good at shooting people... And that Killer Santa should have saved her life and created some kind of tension there. And she would have found out she thought she pulled the trigger and did it. But it was actually Santa behind her with a rifle or something. Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah, I agree. There should have been something more. I'm more partial to, let's tie it back to the dead husband. And maybe in this scene, we would have found out how she didn't save him. And she's, you know, going to pull it this time. I don't know. Something more. But yes, it just ends up being a whole lot of bad storytelling here. Yes, she realizes snowflake because she sees a snowflake ornament, and then she notices something behind the snowflake that she should have noticed the first time she went to the hotel, and that is a wrapped gift left by the Santa killer, who has also left this on the dead bratty girl underneath the tree, and is dropped in the mailbox for her own father, and who is going to deliver it to Cooper at the police station. Everyone that dies got a wrapped gift of coal, and now it's all going to come together, right? It's all going to make sense as to why all these people had to die this holiday night. Of course, given that he's giving Cole, I realize, yes, that's what Santa gives bad people. But wouldn't it have made more sense if they were in, like, West Virginia, where everyone was out of work from a coal mine instead of a wood mill? But it's the touch of Pino. He left the presents. Oh, With the right. dangerous toys. That's true. It's a little homage to that, see? 
I didn't catch that one. Really? It was so obvious. The homage I did catch was Garbage Day. <laughs> yeah, no yeah for that. There was a yeah from me for that. Because sure, the deputy yes. is forced to take out the trash. He goes, what is it? Garbage Day? I mean, that was wonderful. These people, they know where they came from and are proud of it. And that is the biggest prop I can give them is they watch the originals before making this film. I wish Giles had been played by Eric Freeman. I really feel like they missed an opportunity to reuse the actor that made that line so famous in this moment. You can find Waldo easier than you can find Eric Friedman. There are internet sites devoted to finding that man. I'm sure they would have liked to have had Eric Friedman. He has dropped off the face of the planet. I think I smell a documentary here. Perhaps we need to try to find Eric Friedman. I'd rather watch that than what's Heather Langenkamp doing with her life. It's a pretty good kill, too. Axe in the eye, hears headbanging music coming out of this car, and splat. I I thought it looked pretty good. I liked it. It was a little bit basic. I think once you've gone woodchipper, then you've set a new bar for yourself, and it's everything else just becomes a little lackluster. I would have liked to have had him, you know, killed in a garbage day kind of way, but it was appropriately gory and fun. Yeah, if he had only made him turn the gun on himself and shoot himself in the head, that would have been the ultimate callback. But this is the climax, because Santa's come to the police station. Why? Why is he going to the police station? He's after the sheriff. He left him some coal. But again, kind of why? Yeah, I don't know. He's an asshole. And why, when he cuts the power, do the emergency lights come on as green and red? I don't know. This scene doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it does make sense in terms of if you're going to have a climax for this movie, I guess here is where all the action has been the focal point. It only makes sense to end it here at the cop station. But the one thing that bothers me is while he is stalking the sheriff, and I'll be fine with him killing the sheriff because... He kills naughty people, and he somehow knows everyone's an asshole. But he breaks his motive when he goes and kills and disembowels Aubrey's dad. Yeah, I was really thrown for a loop at that point, because I was so sure he was the one doing it, that she finds him dead and gutted. I didn't know what to think anymore. I didn't know what it could be at this point. I was out of clues. I just thought it was breaking his rules, because he kills the naughty. And she even says it. My father was a good man. And I honestly, I was taken back to our conversations about the Punisher with Jacob. I thought Santa might commit suicide when he realized he'd killed a good person. And that's how Santa's reign came to an end. My mind was wandering as far as the plot of this went. So I was just coming up with random stuff. That's a strain. Yes. All right. But maybe, you know, yes. Every other person up to this point that has been killed has shown some kind of bad behavior. I don't know whether it makes it worthy of being murdered, but they have shown a flaw in their character that's pretty pronounced that is, by horror movie logic, the reason they must die. But this guy never did. We'll find out in the end that there is a reason to very specifically target him, but at this point, before we know the real identity of the killer, it's not obvious to us. It's not obvious, but I figured it out. Because they kept going on about how Aubrey's dad was a cop and everything, And we saw that flashback. I'm like, oh, her dad must have been the cop that stopped him at one point in time. So when that becomes a big surprise reveal at the end, Marjorie was surprised by it. Oh, it's her dad. And I'm like, yeah, figured. (laughs) Wish they had given Malcolm McDowell a better death here. He's really, you know, after spending most of the movie being 
petulant and bragging about his bravery. It's taken out really in a puss-ass way. I, he gets the flamethrower. I like that there's the flamethrower. That was one of the big images from the trailer was this Santa with a flamethrower. I like the flamethrower weapon. I really do. I think it's kick-ass. Jason has trademarked the machete. Michael has trademarked the knife. The My Bloody Valentine guy has the pickaxe. So giving Santa a flamethrower, why the fuck not? Okay, I'll go with it. But the axe is his signature. Yeah, I'm with Marjorie on this one. We already had his weapon, and really, they haven't stuck with it. From the very first kill, he had the axe, and then he put it away to fry the guy with the lights. It seems to be like they really don't want to push the axe this time. But the flamethrower, it works for me, but again, I thought it was just a thing of budget as to why Malcolm McDowell's death is sadly one of the worst looking ones he obviously just pretends to fall back a foot while somebody does some overlay cg flame yeah it looked pretty poor when it isn't the real flames i also thought that he might not be dead because the flames come nowhere near him i'm like well maybe he'll live and he'll have the triumphant i'm not dead moment later on no he's dead you wanted that mainly because he got such a crappy death yeah also i mean he needed to be resurrected in order to Make up for that, because it was lame. And Malcolm McDowell, he may not be a great actor, but he's kind of a horror legend. He was a great actor once. Not so long ago, but yeah, I haven't liked him for a little while, and he did nothing for me in this movie. The guy that did nothing for you in this movie, Donna Logue, is next. I feel like this fight would be better if, you know, he was built more like a UFC fighter or something, but what is it to take fat, middle-aged Donald Logue out of a jail cell and then beat him up with brass knuckles? (laughs) But the brass knuckles say, ho, ho, ho! (laughs) Sure, I guess Santa has all the cool toys, but what about the people he picks on? I thought it was a good fight because Donald Logue is big. I didn't realize that, but when he's standing next to the six-foot Santa, it's reminding me, again, I'm thinking Halloween because of Malcolm McDowell, but when... Big Joe Grizzly goes up against Michael Myers. You've got these two giants at it. Donald Logue, he was going to be let go. He, despite all his ranting and raving, was not deemed naughty by this until he starts beating on Santa. And then Santa says the only words he says the whole fucking movie, not nice. Oh, you think the decision was made there? I thought he was dead all along, but he was going to let him think he was getting away. I didn't really think he was going to get away. I didn't think this Santa let anybody get away. I kind of thought that Donald Logue would have a hero moment here because he wasn't the killer and had thus far been wasted for a named actor. And I thought he was going to be the hero along with Aubrey and save Knives Chow. I thought so, too. And I thought he was going to get away because the old lady earlier got away. And the little girl got the bloody candy cane. If you're not naughty, he lets you go. And since this guy wasn't from the town, Santa doesn't know him. So I thought for sure Santa was saying, yep, go home, have a good night. And no, instead, it's a wonderful death. I mean, Santa, this is the only one where Santa really seems to have a grudge. He continues to beat Donald Logue after he's dead because he was not nice. But do you think that he just realized there are other people dressing like Santa and it just really pissed him off? No, he knew of the parade. Well, I don't think Donald Logue is, although physically, yeah, a big guy. I don't think of him as somebody that, you know, is going to win in this fist fight. But I believe him more than I do with Aubrey coming in here. I mean, this is a sham fight, if ever I saw one, when we have Jamie King trying to pretend like she can take on this 
Santa Claus killer. Again, the shaky cam's back. I'm having trouble seeing it. And he pushes her through a plate of glass that seems to be in the middle of nowhere. There's no glass to the left or right of it from what I can tell. There's just this sheet of glass right there for her to go through. And lucky break, his flamethrower's right on the other side and already ignited. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of weirdness. Like The intermittent sprinklers, sometimes they're coming down, sometimes they're not. The roof's on fire, but no one ever went up to the roof. Uh, Yeah, lots about this finale seems patched together. They ran out of money. This is what it feels like. They felt like they shot sequentially. And by this point, there just wasn't enough money to make this right. It's a bad climax. Yeah, it's a disappointing ending. I couldn't believe Knives Chow got away. I thought her sarcasm was enough to kill her. She was one of the few likable characters, though. Yeah, she'll be killed in the sequel. You know, they gotta save those to come back and be a Joey. Do you really think there'll be a sequel, though? We'll talk about it. But first, let's get to the revelation. Yeah, so the movie ends and Sansa's burning, but then we see just his mask alone burning. And then a guy driving a pickup truck that says... R.J. Chimney Care. Get it? Chimney with care. And he pulls down the dashboard, looks at a picture of the porno mustache guy from the flashback. The original Santa killer was his dad, and he was sitting in a pickup watching his dad burn his mom and her lover. And then Aubrey's father is the cop who shot him and stopped his killing spree that night. That was a long road to get there. Yes. So that is why the quote-unquote good guy, father character, was killed. He's really the only one with a legitimate reason to be killed, honestly. (laughs) Like, why everyone else must die, it doesn't make sense. But this kid is avenging his father, who was killing people when he found out that his wife was cheating on him. Is this a callback to Billy? You know, Billy's witnessed a traumatic thing in his youth and grew up to be a Santa Claus killer. Is this yet another callback to the original? Of course it is. But I also want to point out that, and I didn't catch this until Arnie said it, the truck said R.J. Chimney Care. Perhaps it's Ricky or Richard. No, the R.J. stands for Ronald Jones when he's doing his killing in the 70s or whenever it was, maybe the 80s. The wife yells, Ronald, don't. Well, I'm extremely disappointed there's no Ricky in this. Yeah. Seriously. Wow. I thought it was Ricky. Little Ricky in the car. And I didn't care whether Billy was in the car with him or not because, let's face it, he sucked. (laughs) He did. But even if he's avenging his father, if his mission is kill the naughty, the cop was just doing his job. Also, Aubrey's dad says, don't make me shoot you, making me think that, okay, in the Jones family, homicidal Santa passed from father to son. I was trying to figure out from one line if the reason Aubrey couldn't pull the trigger is her father also had problems pulling the trigger. But That's not hereditary? Neither is killer santa it's not it's learned behavior it is yes all in all though it pissed me off because it's treated like a major revelation in the movie ah here's who the killer is it's the original guy's son who we never saw we see him sitting in the truck in the flashback at the end but we didn't see it at the middles where we could figure it out or anything and what's the fucking point Is he done? That's what I want to know now. I'm mad that there was no murder mystery. I'm mad that it was a random character we never met until the end. But what I'm wondering is, if he was going around selecting these towns all along, he was doing it to find the dad character, right? So now that he has, he can stop, right? It's all over. Not at all. First of all, if he's going town to town, it's just because either he was practicing or he just wanted revenge against the naughty. 
But again, that cutscene proved what I suspected, which is this cop was a cop in this town of Cryer, Wisconsin. No, if you look in the flashback, it was Grover City Town Hall where it happened. It was a totally different city. It is not the same place. The dad moved and retired here. Maybe he worked as a cop here, but that is not where the initial incident happened. Is it just lucky he happened to stumble upon this town of Wisconsin where the father lived then? Yes, I think that he was literally going to burn every small town in America until he came across the man that did his father wrong. Did he even know that he did it, though? You know, like, that's the weird thing. Because we know so little about this killer and what he knows, it's just not very satisfying. I'm really angry here at the end. I don't get a yeah from the audience, and I'm not feeling a yeah myself. It cheated is what it boils down to. And I hate it when movies cheat. I don't mean to go all misery on this movie, but it cheated and it's a dirty bird. Let's find out how dirty. Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Silent Night? Marjorie. This is really tough because the kills, I give them an A+, but the plot and the story, I give it like less than an F-. minus. This is that you should have dropped out of school a long time ago, buddy. How'd you even get to college? Says a lot if I thought Jamie King was Jamie Kennedy also. I just, I don't recommend it. They did do a nice thing and pay some homage to the prior ones, but not enough, I think, to make it worth your watch. But again, if I guess I could say, though, if you're in Whole Hog, you might as well watch this one. But as a whole, I would not recommend it as a standalone whatsoever. Stuart. Well, you know, it's not a lump of coal, but I can't quite put it on my nice list either. I mean, as far as slashers go, it's about par, honestly. It's what I would expect a made-for-DVD slasher movie to look like in 2012. It's got a little bit of playful humor, not enough for my taste, but it tries to split the difference between being graphically gory torture porn and a satire about the holiday. I feel like they were onto something by having this multitude cast of small-town America, and I wanted it to come together. But truthfully, at the end of the day, I can't give it a recommend. I can only give it a fruitcake. This is something that is not good, but has some enjoyable merits to it. So I have no problem recommending it in the way that I recommended Part 2 or Part 5, The Toy Maker. But at the end of the day, this entire series is a wash. They're all bad, but this one just happens to be on the better side of bad. And I didn't agree with you about the fruitcake for five. This film never came to fruitcake territory, because I'll give recommends to movies that are so bad they're enjoyable, or so good they're enjoyable, but the thing they both have in common is enjoyable. Here... I came close to giving this movie a non-ironic recommend because the kills are really fun. And if you go back to some of those middling Friday the 13th that I recommended, sometimes that's enough. But where it really lacked that even some of the middling Friday the 13th would have is characters I enjoyed watching be killed. Where you have sympathetic people, not just one sympathetic person and a whole bunch of mean people, but a group of sympathetic people who may sin in other ways, like the mayor's sin of smoking, is somebody who just does weed but is a nice, relatable character, somebody who the youth could relate to, a student who, instead of studying, decides to get drunk underage. Those kinds of sins, much like the sins Jason would punish in Friday the 13th, would have made this film go a lot further, because everyone in this film is so despicable, the age-appropriate characters that could connect to this film's target demographic 
are just nasty people, too. And the fact that the killer is just so bland. He doesn't talk, which would be fine, but he doesn't have a personality. He has a great look. I love the weird mask over the Santa outfit with the beard and the black eyes and the blowtorch. I really love Santa's look here, but there's nothing about him as a character that will make him memorable as a slasher. He is no Jason. He is no Creeper. He is no Jin. He is no Michael Myers. In the end, it's an empty suit. It's a weaker not recommend. There's fun during all the kill scenes, but there's a lot of drag between the kill scenes. And so I'm going to give it a weak not recommend. Yeah, I mean, it's a coin toss here. I, I think for me, what I would have liked to have seen was it either to be a lot funnier or even a little bit scary. It's neither. It's just sort of right there in the middle. And, you know, I think that's hard. Reflecting on this whole series, by trying to design a slasher series set at Christmas time, I almost feel like you have to go for laughs. Because how much harder would it have been if they had legitimately tried to scare you here? I mean, we can all agree, this series does not work in any way as suspense films. No, none of them do. The one that comes closest would probably be part one, where the suspense is, when will he crack? Or when will it be over? (laughs) But yeah, I agree. None of them have worked. I think that they could have gone the Halloween method of just pure horror and tried to not be ironic and just have it pure horror around Halloween. Or they could have gone satirical, which they've tried to do a few times, but none of it has worked. This series as a whole is a fruitcake. It's kind of fun here and there, but... I have rewatched part two since we reviewed it a few weeks ago. Being the Yuletide time and being that every week there's garbage day, I had to put it back in. I had to watch it again. I am truly loving that film. But the rest of these, yeah, they're all lumps of coal and I'm glad to have watched them and know what all the fuss is about and all the protest is about and know what the meme is about. But I'm be happy if... This is where Silent Night comes to an end. I can't see them possibly salvaging anything good out of the series. I think they may try again. This may not be the last one in the entry, but yeah, I much would have rather unwrap Killer Clowns from Outer Space or, you know, a movie that understood how to do comedy and horror at the same time, Scream. I I feel like that comedy horror genre can work. It's the only way to make a Christmas horror film work. And they just don't know how to do it yet. Even with the most professional cast and crew they've had, they still can't pull it off. I don't know. If I unwrap these things on Christmas morning, I'd ask for the receipt and I'd return it for something that I really wanted. I think if we expect a sequel, we'd have to expect it to make some money. Not much. Yeah, there'll be uh, some curiosity. I mean, I I agree. It will rent well to those that are curious. But would anyone buy it and keep it in a collection? I don't know. They'll have to tell us in the forums. And so that is it for this retrospective. Stuart, Marjorie, thank you for joining me. But it's not it for the year. There's one more week, one more holiday, and one more movie for us to review this year. On New Year's Eve, we're going New Year's Evil. Yeah, this one is, uh, it's one for my youth. I have these vague phantom memories of it. I can't wait to get back to it. I'm not sure if it's any good. But it certainly is memorable. And why not close out the year with a laugh? We'll definitely get some of that next week. So you better not pout. You better not cry. You better not shout. 
I'm telling you why. Now playing, we'll be back on New Year's Eve. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Cheer up. Tomorrow's Christmas Eve, and things are only going to get better. If you enjoyed this podcast, head to our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, to hear the other reviews in the Silent Night, Deadly Night series. Let me tell you about Christmas. It ain't all candy canes and pretty lights. As well as other horror movie reviews, such as the Halloween movies, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, House of a Thousand Corpses, and more. You tend to get paranoid when everyone around you gets dead. We also have non-horror movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, The Avengers, Rambo, Rocky, and more. That sounds like an enterprise of great pith. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Is it live or is it Memorex? While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You will talk. I will listen. But then you know that. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. So where are you going to go? The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. You have to come up sometime. And when you do, I'll be waiting for you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. <laughs> Give a dollar for the kitties. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Put the money in the bag. Now Playing's Silent Night, Deadly Night is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. What are you, a masochist or something? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. I'm finished talking, Henry. The Silent Night, Deadly Night films are the property of their individual studios and stakeholders, and no infringement is intended. Too many people get away with shit like that. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. There is no logical explanation. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. It's over! Time to get shit-faced! <laughs>
Punish! I cannot stop quoting Ricky. It's a real problem. <laughs> it is. Is it a problem? I don't know. I'm okay with it. <laughs> well, today, unfortunately, it was a lot. Because we had a massive garbage day. We put out like eight cans <laughs> of garbage. It was garbage day extreme. <laughs> garbage day! <laughs> 